Welcome to the Sports Nutritionist Podcast. Now, again, this is the podcast specifically for practitioners in the field of sports nutrition. Our guest today is a good friend and colleague of mine, Dr. Cliff Harvey. Cliff is one of the advisory board members within the association, and he is the founder of the Holistic Performance Institute. Now, a lot of people know Cliff for his research in the low-carbohydrate and ketogenic diet space, but he has actually... And he will say this himself, um, and as you'll hear in the episode, he covers the fact that what he practices is carb-appropriate research. And so we flesh that out initially, and then we get into some background as to what his journey was like as a practitioner, and then finish with some smaller discussions as it relates to research to practice and how people view things from there. So I hope you enjoy this episode. I'm really excited for it, and uh, let us know what you think about it in the comments. We're going to go through some novel novel concepts and contemporary subjects that may be plaguing the social media sphere as it relates to nutrition. But at the same time, we're going to give you insight from a practitioner level and an experiential level. So I'm joined today by Dr. Cliff Harvey, who's a colleague of mine on the board within the Sports Nutrition Association. So thanks for joining us, Cliff. Thanks for having me on, brother. It is always a pleasure talking with you. It is it is absolutely my pleasure, as always. So, uh, mate, I want to kick off today with you giving us a bit of an overview of yourself as a practitioner and your experience up until this point. Yeah, well, I guess it's a somewhat convoluted journey. I started out back in the late nineties. I mean, like like many of us in the nutrition field, I started out as a personal trainer, strength coach, nutrition coach, and then sort of developed into a sports nutritionist and then clinical nutritionist over time. Um, a fairly rapid sort of progression, but that was the, the process. And I know a lot of people go through that process as well. Um, so like I said, that was back in the late 90s. I initially studied fitness training, <clears throat> which included strength coaching, um, nutrition, basic nutrition, sports nutrition, those types of things. And within... A very short period of time, really within about a year, I was working with a lot of top athletes, you know, people from our uh, New Zealand rugby league team here, a, a lot of professional athletes. And at that stage, rugby had just gone professional. We we're talking about that long ago. Uh, and then over the years, worked with a lot of Commonwealth athletes, you know, Olympians, world champions, uh, particularly in the spaces of initially it was weird because I was working with a lot of endurance athletes, but also a lot of, you know, combat and contact sport athletes. Uh, which is more sort of my bias where I, you know, did a lot of my sport and, and still do. Uh, so through the years, I've worked a lot with uh, with fighters in particular, um, although now I predominantly focus in clinical nutrition and have done for, you know, quite a few years. So I still have my hand in sports. We obviously teach sports nutrition at my uh, institute, um, but I, I practice as a clinical nutritionist and predominantly now I'm an educator and researcher. So post those early days, uh, I moved through some esoteric stuff. You know, I studied naturopathy. I did an undergrad in naturopathy, uh, went on post that and did a lot of modality work in mind-body healthcare and mind-body medicine. I uh, started my post-grad journey in mind-body healthcare. So I did my early post-grad in mind-body healthcare, uh, then sort of circled back to nutrition for my master's and doctorate. And uh, for those, I really focused on th this idea of carb-appropriate nutrition, which I guess uh, is what I'm probably most well-known for, if I'm well-known for anything at all. <laughs> That's you. You're the carb-appropriate guy, right? 
Oh, I, I think so. I'm pretty sure I coined that term back in the nineties. I know it's become a bit more common now, which is, you know, super cool. I think it's, um, I love seeing on social, you know, people who have never met me or even heard of what I've done. They've sort of heard by proxy uh, using this term carb appropriate to describe that spectrum of nutrition that that can work for different people. And, you know, it really pertains to individualizing nutrition uh, for, for people based on their needs. Mm-hmm. And would you say there's a distinction between a carb appropriate approach and an approach like say fueling for the work required that James Morton likes to promote or are they pretty much the same thing? We're just using different terms. They're they're very similar. I I think the main difference would be that, you know, the the carb appropriate idea recognizes the, the entire spectrum and it really, despite the fact that a lot of people think it's tied up with low carb, it's really not. Mm. It's, it's more so about looking at that spectrum of nutrition and recognizing that absolutely we want to fuel for the work required. That's a massive part of it, but also recognizing within that there isn't always a, a right way to fuel either. You know, we have stunning examples of, of outliers, you know, people who follow very low carb diets and compete at a very high level in various sports. Mm. Uh, we also have, you know, people who follow, low carb diets for them that wouldn't be considered low carb diets, but they're functionally low carb. Of course, we also have people who are following very high carb diets and, you know, performing well because of that, because obviously they're fueling for the work required. Uh, But it also goes beyond that because when we get tied up too much with the physiology, I think we forget that sometimes perfection can be the enemy of progress. Mm. And, you know, the, the best diet for someone's physiology is not always the best diet for them. You know, put it in the example of if you have type two diabetes, uh, you know you're you're with obesity and you're needing to 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 really get on top of your health status. I think a lot of people would would be on board with saying, well, probably a low carb diet is going to be appropriate for you, and it's it's probably going to be very effective. Mm. But if you if you hate eating low carb, then you're not going to stick to it, right? And so that's where it opens the doors to to culture, society. Uh, you know, family or whānau, as would say here, um, you know, the psychosocial environment. So it's really looking at the whole context of the individual and what are they going to be able to do to, to get optimum results. Um, but, but similar to that concept of fueling for the work required, it's also about eating for the result desired. Right? Yeah, and that, and, so I like that, that. Yeah, I, I, you know, I hate to rhyme something on the fly. <laughs> You're spitting um, great rhymes right now. Keep going. Yeah, man, I'm a lyrical miracle. Um, <laughs> you know, the, the, this outcomes-based nutrition is really important, and that can change. You know, it can change through your lifespan. It can change according to what your life circumstances. It can obviously change based on the, the work you're doing, but it can also change subtly um, according to, to, to what you want to achieve with body composition. It might change subtly based on how your life situation changes or how your family situation changes. And I I don't don't think we should be scared of that. I think we've become so enmeshed in this idea of I've got to find the right approach for me. We think about that as an absolute, you know, Mm. well, I'm, I'm into low carb. This is not me, but if someone's saying I'm into low carb, that's the diet for me. That means they're not going to look outside of that if their life circumstance changes. Whereas I, I think one of the things that I really enjoyed when I first got into this field was that we, we played with nutritional concepts and I still do, 
Mm. You know, this is how I got into keto initially because I was reading books by Dan Duchesne and some of those early guys, you know, Maury Pascali and obviously the first iterations of Atkins and thought, well, this is interesting. I'm going to play around with this and give it a go. You know, it also tried other things, but it wasn't as if we were trying to find the perfect approach necessarily. We were just playing around with dietary concepts to see what happened, you know, and in many respects, that's the first stage of science, Mm. you know experimenting and experimentation starts with the self. And so I think the end of one is this is a great example of, you know, citizen sciencery. Yeah, definitely. It's a great, it's a great uh, initial pilot to then <laughs> propose a study from there from, from that point with anyway. Exactly. And so, you know, we can see a lot of indication about what might work for, for people overall from mm. what we see in the end of one. What we also see from the end of one is what works for that individual. And, you know, so often we forget that that's what's most important to that individual. You know, Mm -hmm. someone will say, you know, and then we get that polar idea, of course, we'll get people saying, well, this worked for me as if that should mean it works for everybody. No, that doesn't mean it'll work for everyone at all. But in opposition to that, a lot of people will say, well, that was just you. But for that person, that's the entirety of the story. So, you know, Eric and I, Eric Helms and I talked about this a lot, the idea that you know, best practice should be based on the evidence and where it is, we're looking at what works basically most of the time for most people, like Mm. really well. But if we're working with an individual, we need to be prepared to shift from best practice immediately because it's unlikely that that particular regimen is going to work exactly for that person. So, you know, we start from the best practice because it's based on the evidence, but then we shift based on the needs of the individual very quickly. Yeah, definitely. I, the way I describe it, it, it's funny that you bring that up. The way that I describe it is best practice is really just refining to a very large bandwidth spectrum that does no harm. And then you're operating completely within that realm for the individual at that point. Exactly. I mean, that, that's a great, it's a great way to look at it. I, it just re- reminds me, I just saw a post on LinkedIn just before, which got me a little bit fired up. And it was basically one of these things where you know, these are all the bad things that you're doing. You know, you're eating dairy, you're eating bread, all this kind of stuff. And I'm sort of, and all these people on the thread were agreeing with it and saying, yeah, you should get rid of dairy. Now, I thought that was a really good example of, of what we're talking about, because if we look at the evidence, for most people, most of the time, dairy is probably a healthy addition to the diet, mm. right? That doesn't mean, though, that as a lot of people state, don't worry about avoiding dairy because it's healthy. Like that would be true for most people most of the time, but we certainly know that there's a very strong indication that for people with autoimmune conditions, uh, people with underlying allergies that aren't always well diagnosed, Mm. dairy can be a big problem, but they're not most people. So, you know, it's a matter of you, you can start with having a bigger compendium of food and only restrict it when you need to. Like Exactly. Why cut things out if you don't need to? That's always been a, a thing that's ap- appeared really strange to me in this world of nutrition. But people want to be extreme, right? They mm-hmm. want to be dogmatists. They want to be doing something different. And they want to be seen to be right. And as soon as we can stop feeling like we need to be right, we're going to move forward way better. Yeah. Look, I completely agree. And I, I just add like my, 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 my like thoughts in extension to what you're saying is really that like, like, like there is no one fixed thing that's going to work. And if we can have more of a fluid mentality, like you're suggesting and understand that what's right for that individual, that, that, that concept of even for the individual, that's a fluid thing as well. 
like lifestyle environment, all that stuff's going to change as well. So, you know, like if we can help find them what works for them at that point in time, that's great. And then help them learn and critically think and critically apply some evidence-informed concepts along the way as their lifestyle and environment changes. So that way they're finding what works for them along the way. That's it. It's not a fixed endpoint. It's sort of similar to, I would describe it as similar to the concept of um, Kaizen versus perfect and perfection. Absolutely. Yeah, no, that's a, a really good way to look at it. And, you know, it's one of the things that I, I really appreciate about the, the the board that's been accumulated at the Sports Nutrition Association is to a person, they're all pragmatic, right? And so they'll, they'll recognize, and, and not just pragmatic, but also it's, I think, the new vanguard of sort of nutrition overall, but particularly we're seeing it in sports nutrition, which is great, is that there's a movement away from vilifying things. Mm. Not in all sectors, but amongst the, those progressive leaders, there's a movement away from this is good, this is bad, you know, and that goes for not just foods, but for body shapes, body types as well. Mm. You know, we're really starting to move away from that and look at a, a client-centered, health-centric approach, uh, which, you know, is, is going to have to be individualized at some point. Yeah, definitely. Um, I want to get back to that in a bit, but I want to ask you, cause you brought up the carb appropriate stuff. I want to ask you about some of the most common misconceptions you've seen or misapplications of the carb appropriate approach and what they are. And then what you, I guess what you've identified and then what you would propose as a solution. I think the biggest misconception out there is that, and this arises from the fact that I've done research in low carbon keto, right? Mm. So people think that when I'm talking about carb appropriate or they hear that idea of carb appropriate, that it's about low carb and that's what's appropriate. Or if they're looking at a spectral sort of idea that carb appropriate pertains to the spectrum of, of low carb diets. But, you know, as we discussed earlier, it's, it's, it's broader than that. It includes everything, mm. right? And so in, in some respects, it's a catch-all. So it, it loses a bit of its meaning, except for the fact that, that it's important to recognize that there is a spectrum, number one. Number two, that there probably are some physiological indicators that might help to predict what type of diet someone could follow for best results. But also that only that is only true in the context of that person's psychosocial dynamic and their, their entire lifestyle and their food yeah. environment. So it, it really speaks to that spectrum. And so when people categorize it as, you know, low carb or you're a low carb guy, or because you're a keto researcher, that's what your focus is going to be. That's a complete myth because, you know, we know absolutely that there are people that thrive at either end of the spectrum. Most people are probably somewhere around the middle and it's really about recognizing that. So I'd say that that's probably the biggest myth or misconception that I see. Um, apart from that, I think people tend to, to get the concept, right? The only other myth and misconception that I can really think of is that people think the carb appropriate idea might also be about, well, it's not the, the carbs that are the problem. It's the types of carbs you're eating. Mm. You know, those two statements are true to some degree, but they're also incorrect, you know, because carbs aren't the problem, right? Carbs are never the problem. It's someone's entire diet with a little d and lifestyle environment that can be an issue for their health. Now, again, and that comes down to choice too. If someone wants to be in a particular state of health, that's not optimized for them. Who am I to judge? 
mm. right? We, we can't be sanctimonious about health. Mm. Uh, but, but also in terms of the types of carbs, I, I think most of us would agree that there are certain consistencies within good quality diets. Uh, but to say that there are good and bad carbs, we sort of fall into that trap again. You know, who's to say that if we are following a nutrition plan that is nutrient replete, that meets our energy availability and includes a little bit of treat food here and there, I mean, that's not a problem. Mm, exactly. I would say, I, I, I would agree. Like we had some census stuff done uh, within the, like the Australian government in the last few years. And they looked at the recommended fruit and vegetable intake amongst the adult population uh, at a state-by-state capacity. And what they found was that less than 7% of the adult population consumed the recommended fruit and veg intake. So, you know, it's like, well, look, if we are meeting our nutrient requirements through whole foods in a food first approach, then who's to say that, you know, X amount of sugar or this type of carbohydrate is really going to impact you in a negative capacity. 100%. And, you know, I think that's, that's some of the underpinnings as well of, you know, not, not just my approach to nutrition, but I think a, a common approach to nutrition or a commonality amongst people who are pragmatic about nutrition is that there are underpinnings that are more important than the, the fine points, mm, mm. you know, and I'd always start with people think this is a little bit washy, but it's not. I always start with a, a qualitative approach to nutrition. You know, I think when we think about the fundamentally important things in nutrition, we have to start from the standpoint of, I think every piece of research points to the same conclusion that diets that are very high in ultra refined foods are worse for us. And diets that have a greater preponderance of more unrefined foods are better for us. Yeah. We can see that with a lot of the whole grain research. I know that um, in New Zealand, for instance, they're really big on uh, servings of grains daily. And some of the people, I guess, get a bit turned off at that. They're like, oh, we shouldn't have so much carbohydrate in our diet. It's bad for us. Um, When in reality, it's like, well, they're promoting a diverse array of whole grains. And there's a lot of positive research associated with uh, reduced risk and improve markers associated with heart disease, metabolic syndrome, um, and type two diabetes, but then we see the complete reverse of that when it's a refined grain. So we know that heart disease, metabolic syndrome, type two diabetes, and all the, and uh, a few other, uh, I think even some tumor markers, uh, also increase with an increased consumption of refined grains. Yeah. Uh, and you know, I think that's also consistent with a lot of the research that has really polarized people if they're committed to low carb or high carb, low fat, mm. you know, for example, the, the pure study, you know, everyone in low carb loved it because it seemed to suggest that the more fat you eat, the less carbohydrate, the, the better off you're going to be. And then the, um, <clears throat> the research from the Arab cohort comes out and that's promoted around the world as if, you know, low carb diets are going to kill you. But what that really showed and I think what both of them actually showed, but particularly that, that Eric cohort study showed that if you, if you dig into the food data, it really looks like the people who were at that low carb end were eating more refined foods that were higher in fat. So concomitantly, yeah. they're going to be lower in carbohydrate. But what wasn't talked about as much was that people at the high, extreme high carb end also 
had challenges. They had, you know, increased mortality as well. And so what were they eating? Well, they were typically eating refined foods that were lower in fat, but very high in carbohydrate, basically sugar, right? Mm. So we could almost categorize it as maybe the burgers and hamburger type cohort at the bottom end versus the lollies and fizzy drink cohort yeah. at the top end. Irrespective, it's about refined it's food that. versus, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, in, in excess, of course. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, and I mean, that that's that's a commonality that I think isn't talked about enough because really if we're trying to make healthier eating more accessible to people, there needs to be simplification of the messages. Mm. You know, this is something my, my colleagues and I have talked about a lot and we've, you know, put out sort of proxy uh, dietary guidelines and things like that for the New Zealand government, which haven't been uptaken, but they're, they're basically a thought exercise. And it always starts with, you know, eat, eat more unrefined food, mm. eat less of the ultra processed foods. But then there are other things, you know, within that as well that are critically important, like eat for enjoyment, eat with your family, you know, mm. um, enjoy your food, eat culturally appropriate foods. All those various things are, are critically important too. There yeah. are obviously some, some nuances that, then begin to to go from the bigger to the finer, uh, which are I think critically important for helping people be healthier as well. Um, but yeah, the, the the sort of base is always that qualitative base. Yeah, that's so interesting. So, I mean, on on that topic, like this is, I guess, the amalgamation and some total of your years of experience as a practitioner and researcher now and educator. Uh, to get you to the point where you're considering the psychosocial dynamic and impact of food as well, uh, as well as, you know, the, I, I guess, uh, what, how did you coin it before? There was, uh, <laughs> what did you call it? It was, uh, it was in response to the fuel for the work required, but it was something about like the lifestyle Lifestyle. Of, I forget what it was. Anyway, I'm kicking myself. It was so good. Fuel for the work required or eat for the, Goal desired or something like that. the goal desired. There we go. And Even then, the outcome desired. That's it. So that that's helped you come to this point, right? Um, so talk me through a little bit about, I guess, at, when you were a practitioner, what your like, what your clients. I'm still were a like. practitioner, by the way. Oh yes, yes, yes. Sorry. Okay, that's that, that, that's a really good point. So how many clients are you working with at the moment now? Not not a lot. You know, be be straight up. I I probably see two clients a week at the moment. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's, that's a function of, of a couple of things. It's, it's because obviously with, you know, the research and education work that takes up most of my time. Yeah. Uh, but it's also because I tend to work with people nowadays who have, you know, they're, they're quite specific. They're, they're generally people with fairly complex health conditions. Um, people that are, are really in my wheelhouse as far as autoimmune conditions and things like that. Mm. And so I, I get a lot more, applicants obviously but I, I tend to send those off to my colleagues nowadays because you know that's um that's also part of having our community and, and being able to, to to give back to some of the young guns who are are probably more enmeshed with that stuff a great example of that is you know when I was in my early days of practice I worked with a lot of top bodybuilders and I was I was a very good physique preparation nutritionist mm. you know I got people in lean dry they look great I had world champions you know I had um, natural world champions like Will Garrick and um, 
oh, a, a number of them anyway back in the day. We're talking about a long time ago. <laughs> but now if someone came to me for physique prep, I, I would just say, look, I'm, I'm out of the game. I'm, mm. I'm not current enough because there are guys out there that are so good. You know, there are young guys coming up who are awesome. There's guys who, like Eric, who, you know, yeah. know that stuff to the nth degree. I, I just mm. wouldn't do it. No, I'm the same. I'm in the same boat. So you're effectively like the Dr. House of carb appropriate and autoimmune combined nutrition. You're taking on like the Dr. House cases now. Yeah. A lot, a lot of it is troubleshooting like that. You know, we have sort of, Mm. you know, intractable cases where people can't quite figure it out. And to be honest, I don't think that I'm doing anything extraordinary per se. I, I tend to actually get the best results by taking things back to basics Mm. You know, I, I wrote a, I did a medical case study last year on uh, a kid came to me, uh, had uh, alopecia areata, which is an autoimmune condition, results in spot baldness. And this kid had very extensive baldness on the head. And it, the, the family had been told that, that there's really no interplay with diet and lifestyle, as people are often told. Yeah. Now, I think that sort of comes about a little bit because of a lack of knowledge, but also because it's a little bit of a reaction as well against a lot of the people out there who say, basically, it's it's your fault because you're eating a shitty diet or you're doing something poor with your lifestyle. And the docs, you know, I guess revolt against that a little bit and say, well, it's probably not that big an effect from diet or lifestyle. Um, however, I think that it's also remiss to to neglect that, right? To neglect the mm. effect of diet and lifestyle on any condition. And it happens to be that there is a fair amount of research, you know, bubbling away in the background showing that there could well be some, some very interesting nutrient interactions with autoimmune conditions, particularly alopecia. So anyway, um, you, you, people can read this, this medical case study. It was published in the journal Curious, uh, but it's, it's basically... The, the approach for that client really came down to a nutrient-dense diet, getting a little, little bit more sun and ensuring pre, uh, repletion in just a few key nutrients like vitamin D, zinc, vitamin A. It's pretty simple stuff, but often people aren't really connecting the dots. They're not looking mm. at the evidence. They're not taking that uh, inductive approach where they're looking at the volume of evidence and showing what has the strongest possibility for treatment outcome not sort of pulling together the lifestyle aspects and then having that be able to be applied because that's obviously a big part as well. So if you can't apply it, you know, there's no point doing it. So Mm. it's really about that translational practice, which is really research into application. So, yeah, I mean, exactly. Like a lot of people, and I mean, I I see it, especially at at what I would consider an entry level for the educational um, realm in sports nutrition where people have that, you know, they're running the interference effect between nutritional and lifestyle and exercise interventions. It's nothing's complementing one another. Exactly. Exactly. You know, I think there's a, there's a, there's a bit of a problem too in the idea that there should be a conflict you know, there's a conflict between what people see as being holistic and what people see as being scientific. Mm. That's not a conflict. They're different concepts. Holism mm. is the whole. It's the whole person. It's the whole environment. It's it's the totality of the modalities or methods that might help that person to achieve. 
science is our our way of making sense of that. You know, it's like I explained to my students, so, uh, evidence is, is critical, not just because it makes us safe and effective, it makes our lives easier, mm. right? If you have 100 interventions that might work and five of them have a whole bunch of RCTs backing their use and it's really strong data, you're going to use those five. It's easy, yeah, right? Exactly. So there's no conflict between holism and science. There's no conflict, I don't believe, between orthodox treatment methods and those that might be considered by, by some to be more natural or holistic or alternative, assuming those methods are effective, are safe, and are evidence-based. Exactly. Right? Yeah. So there's, And similarly, there's not a conflict, I don't think, between health and performance. It no. doesn't have to be. Now, sometimes we'll do things for performance that are not in our best interests health-wise, particularly acutely. Yeah. Right. I can think about when I was weightlifting and Weight I blew out my shoulder. Yeah. You know, Grand finals, whatever the, it is, national yeah. competitions. Well, I, I had the world champs. Uh, this is going to be going back to probably 2004. Had the world champs in a couple of weeks and I blew out my shoulder a bit. I tore a rotator and um, physio said, oh, well, can you lift in a different way? And so she sort of tried to show me a, a different way to lift. And I was like, no, you can't do that. I mean, I'm not going to be able to lift anything if I try and do that. I said, oh, do you have to compete? I was like, of course I have to compete. Are you <laughs> like, kidding me? <laughs> now, of course, if it was just purely about health, there's no way I'd compete. I'd just stop training. You know, I'd do my rehab and I'd, you know, take a year off or so. Um, but obviously that wasn't the reality. So, of course, we do things in the acute setting that may not always be conducive to optimal health. However, fundamentally, performance is built on health. Mm. You know, when I was working with, uh, you know, top level athletes in high school and, and college in Canada and the US, a, a lot of these kids, you know, might go on to, to be professional athletes, right? And obviously up in the US, there's going to be a lot of dough for that as mm. well. So that they want to make sure they're doing things correctly. And I'd always say to them, you can perform really well despite a poor diet, right? Because we see people that do that. Yeah. But I'd then say it's it's highly unlikely you'll be able to do it for a long time, because you know the if we're not eating a good diet, if we're not having an appropriate diet and lifestyle environment that's really conducive to health, we're going to have more inflammation. We're going to have greater you know pro propensity towards injury, less um, you know more worsened injury recovery, all those various things. Mm. Even things like poor mental health, you know, that's going to affect us not necessarily straight away, but it's certainly going to affect us in the medium to long term. So, you know, I firmly believe that performance is built on health. That's why when I give lectures at medical conferences about performance nutrition, they that they almost expect for it to be completely different to what I'm saying for health nutrition. But it's pretty similar. The foundation's the same. It's just the the fine tuning on top. It's like the little plugins on top that are different. Yeah, exactly. It's like they expect you to throw the baby out with the bathwater, but the reality is, is for for not for the majority of the time, it's the same, and it should be complementary of that. It's just at certain points there are choices and cost benefit ratios that are being weighed up, given I you know give, given what's on the line. Yeah, for certain, and, and for certain athletes at certain times. Exactly, and what gets in the way? Dogmatism. Yeah. Right, and low carb athletes are a great example of that. Well, they can be, because hey. If you say I'm low carb and I have to eat less than this amount of grams of carbohydrate in every day, but my volume of work's going up, my training volume's going up, 
a lot and I'm starting to flag, I see it in forums and on Facebook groups and things all the time. You know, I'm, I'm getting, you know, I can't recover and I, I can't perform and all this kind of stuff. How can I change this? And what they're really asking is how can I change this within my low carb diet? And I typically jump in and get a lot of flack for it by saying, eat more carbs. <laughs> like, it's, not, it's not brain size. It's not brain surgery, I should say. But it's, um, you know, it, it's a simple thing. And, and what people don't realize is if they are physiologically and psychosocially really well attuned to a low-carb diet, it works really well for them. Fantastic. Mm. But what they don't realize is that by adding some carbohydrate, you, they're probably still functionally low-carb. Yeah. You know, I've had athletes, cyclists, elite level cyclists, who, because they're expending so much energy, we're talking about 4,000 plus calories a day, they might be eating 250 grams of carbs in a day mm. and they can still be in ketosis. Yeah, I, I, I saw it. I, I Something that I was really dogmatic about, um, especially like, I, I guess, dogmatically, like was obsessed with as far as like the physiology was concerned. And you were talking about, you know, people get really obsessed with the physiology. Um, we're talking about that initially in this and they get so caught up with the physiology and trying to, you know, match the physiology, especially as it relates to a textbook that you often don't see the individual and the nuance with the individual. I was so caught up and I was like that for a good, probably three, four years where I was like, you can't have a high protein diet and be ketogenic because you, like the gluconeogenic processes with amino acids would impair that and inhibit it. Yep. And then, and then I thought, oh, you like you can't be moderate to low carb and be ketogenic with a high protein diet as well. And I was going through it for myself and putting myself through it because I had uh, a couple of colleagues and friends who were saying, look, anecdotally, what like what while what you're suggesting makes sense as far as the textbooks are concerned. Anecdotally, this just isn't what we're seeing clinically both for ourselves and both for clients. And the moment that someone is moderately well-trained, it just changes things as far yeah. as that's concerned. And so I put, I put myself through it, was taking my blood, consistent blood readings, and sure as anything, I'm ketogenic eating 220 grams of protein a day, around 200 grams of carbohydrates a day. And I was like, there's absolutely no way that this should be happening. Um, so I, I learned firsthand. Yeah. And I think that's still one of the big myths that we see in, in the keto world, well, like mm. in general, is that you know you, you shouldn't consume a high higher protein diet, and I think that's a real shame. Um, I need to own my mistakes as well because there was a period; it was only for a very short period of time. I'm going to say like three to six months or something, where I sort of started thinking the same, right? And I I almost knew that it was incorrect because I'd been prescribing what were considered previously not anymore, but what were previously considered high protein diets for years. Mm. That's pretty much what got me into, or it, it's kind. Of, it's pretty much what got me into low carb initially. And like I said, I'm not just into low carb, but that's what uh, you know got me into investigating it. Was that we were told in our physiology classes that you know fit the the roles of fat is predominantly fuel and structure. Protein is basically structure. Carbohydrates are there for fuel. Mm. almost entirely right i know there's some structural components yeah cellular fuel that's what you're told that's what the textbooks say yeah but then we were told to arbitrarily prescribe high carbohydrate amounts and i was sort of thinking well 
there's this emerging research showing that we should probably be eating more protein. And particularly if we're athletes or we're dieting and all this mm. kind of stuff. Now things that are very much foundational, you know, we would yeah. learn in any sports nutrition course. It was pretty revolutionary back in the nineties. And so I started looking at that and thinking, well, let's, let's focus on protein first and let's optimize protein. And let's provide a minimum amount of fat as indicated by the research. I'm not talking about high amounts here. I'm talking about maybe 20 to 30% calories. calories. Yep. To preserve hormonal status, prevent overtraining, all this kind of stuff. This is not in a dieting person. This is just in a normal sort of eucaloric diet. And most times there wasn't enough left. Once I'd optimized protein and given a sort of fairly minimal amount of fat to have the arbitrary carbohydrate recommendations that we were told. So that's yeah, what was that like six, six to nine grams of carbs a day per kilo of body weight? Yeah, well, I think we were told it was 65% plus wow, okay. of, of calories. So, yeah, and that, that's not uncommon. Yeah. You know, a, a, I remember a diet, it. Yeah. Kellogg's, even now, Kellogg's carbohydrate recommendations. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> even now, you know, a, a low carb, it's considered low carb if it's under 45% of calories. So, you know, I, I don't think many of us would consider a 45% of energy from carbs to, to be low carb. No, I would consider that to be moderate. firmly moderate. Yeah. yeah. Um, but that was, it was interesting because that's what really flipped the switch for me. And like I say, it was driven by protein. protein us, yeah. So I had been prescribing higher protein for, by this stage, I'm thinking like 10, 15 years. Right. And there was a very short blip where I was influenced by a lot of the you know, the, the people who were coming up in low carb, who became the sort of superstars of low carb, some of whom had been doing it a long time. Some of them actually hadn't been doing that at, at that long, considering, mm. you know, I got into this field in the, in the nineties, some of them had been in it far less than I had, but they were typically saying across the board, you know, too much protein is going to drive gluconeogenesis. It's going to inhibit blah, 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 blah. Mm. And so I fell in line with that for a very short period of time and then thought, hold on, this is crazy. Because number one, gluconeogenesis is predominantly demand-driven, not supply-driven. Yeah. Now, that's also a good thing because we're always going to need some glucose, regardless of what people say. You know, we, we need it for red blood cells. There's also some neurons that don't use other substrate very effectively. So we're going to need some amount of glucose. So if it's demand-driven, not supply-driven, and the body's producing it, it kind of needs it. Now, you and I both know that people, if they want to be in ketosis, can be in ketosis very easily on a, an optimized protein diet. So that's not yeah. a problem anyway. But let's say, as it often occurs, that, you know, let's say I'm optimizing protein and I'm in ketosis, but I'm maybe 0.1 or 0.2 of a millimole lower in ketones. People freak out about that. They're like, oh, I'm not as deep in ketosis because I'm having this protein. And I always say, look, the, the protein... Is, is going to be critical for Recovery. performance and health over the long term. Yeah. Optimize that first. Who cares if you're at, you know, 0.6 as compared to 0.7? It just doesn't matter. That this idea that people want to be deep in ketosis for some strange reason just baffles me. You know, you wouldn't say the same if you want if you were like following a high carb diet and you're like, oh, I'm only five millimoles of glucose. I want to be eight. You know, no one would say that. <laughs> Crazy, hey. Yeah, that's funny. As <clears throat> now, so, of course, there's, in some situations, people want to have higher levels of ketones. No doubt, neurodegenerative disorders, maybe you know seizure yeah. disorders and things like that. But we're really getting into uh, very rare occurrences, and it's it's very clinical at that point. Most people who follow keto, it's because they want to stay lean, 
they want to get lean, stay lean, feel good. Yeah. Yeah. So, it might be, it, yeah. It's the, I, I would say <laughs> what I've observed with the keto crowd is very similar to, and there's this crossover now uh, with the like intermittent fasting and keto. The, it's like the intermittent fasting keto group. They've sort of yeah. combined the two and it's the intention are get lean, stay lean, weight manage, and then optimize mental performance. It, like yeah. avoid the brain fog. And so exactly. a lot of it's sort of like entrepreneurs, um, aspiring academics, all that kind of stuff. And it's like, Hey, if it works for you and that's good, that's awesome. Yeah. But don't worry about the point too. Exactly. And that's, that's the key is if it works for you, great. And the most important thing that people can be asking themselves is, well, how do I feel? Mm. Cause I, I had that discussion with, um, I'm sure he won't mind me talking about it. My, my buddy who's, you know, very much a low carb guy, <laughs> he's not really, um, he's very clear about that, but that's professor Grant Schofield. Mm. Um, when he was just getting into it, he gave me a call and said, Oh, Cliff, you want to come up and have a chat? So I showed up to the university. We had a chat and he was saying, you know, I can't get into like ketosis and I can't get deeper into ketosis because he was probably sitting around 0.4 millimoles. And I sort of looked at what he was doing. It looked fine. You know, it looked great. And um, so I said, well, how are you performing? He said, I'm performing great. He said, how are you feeling? Great. So who cares? Exactly. Like, who cares what the number is? <laughs> People get way too hung up on numbers. Yeah. And, and that's the thing. Like if you feel good and it's easy and you can see yourself doing it long-term, I think there's a lot to be said for that being, and like you were saying, you know, start with a qualitative approach first. They're, 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 they're like my three main qualitative highest criteria points when I look at anything. It like, and, then, and then the final thing, which is a quantitative thing is like, are you getting the results that you want? Exactly. Exactly. Right. So yeah, it's like three, three qual, one quant. Yep. If, if, if I'm satisfying those, then yeah. And if, and if, and if, and if the quant is like, oh, I am, but I'd really like this point two sorted, but really like all the other things, all the other quantitative things, it's just like this one little metric isn't perfect, but all the other metrics are trending the right way. Then mate, it, it, it's happy days. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, you know, that's where qualitative research I think is important. Mm. You know, we published a qualitative paper that was shared around a fair bit because it, it's seen as being quite novel and I, it's seen as being quite novel, but it's also qualitative research is looked down upon. Now I think that's crazy because it's not about one or the other, you know, we're not casting a, it's not a competition between qual versus quant, mm. you know, often the, the qual research that is done is embedded within quantitative research. You know, why do we want to see the qualitative stuff? Because let's, let's say we've got, you know, let's say someone's looking for muscle gain and we've got two diets and we're comparing them and they end up being identical. Yeah. Right. They both gain the same amount of muscle. So they're, they're identical in terms of outcome. But if we also did some qualitative research and people on diet A felt way better, just in terms of their subjective feelings, you know, their, yeah, their um, experience of, of life yeah, yeah, was better, then arbitrarily, that's better. Mm. Not arbitrarily. Empirically, that's better. Yeah. <laughs> like legitimately, it's better. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Qualitative to me informs pragmatism more like pragmatism to the individual more so than what quant does. Yeah. Especially in terms of how I deliver it. That's a really good point. I've reviewed a number of papers recently that are, that are looking at diet interventions, but they're not really looking at the diet as it's not important to these studies, Mm. whether the, the people actually s- adhere to it to some degree. 
Yeah. Um, I mean, it is important, but it's not important whether they actually end up hitting particular macro content or energy or whatever, because the idea is that it's about the delivery of the system and whether that gives results. Mm. So what people actually do is less important than whether they're getting results to some degree. Now, of course, what they do is going to influence results. We all know that. I mean, that's a given. But it's a good example of that is one of the papers we published, we compared three different low-carb diets. I'll you know make this a short story. Um, overall, the, the, very, the lowest carb diet performed best for whatever reason. It's probably just because, you know, that's like the bookend type theory. You know, generally people um, are more satiated, you know, mm. auto-regulate all that kind of stuff when they're following either really low carb or maybe really low fat, right? Those seem, seem to be the, the most in terms of- Yeah, there's, this, there's the smallest parameters for, <laughs> I guess, like error margin. So they have to be really strict. Yeah. And on that lowest carb diet though, the a lot of the- the, the, the press and social media sort of attention that that came out about that said that, well, you know, that seemed to perform best. There wasn't that much difference between the diets actually, but it seemed to perform best, but people found it hard to adhere to it. And I took a little bit of issue to that, not because they were wrong, it's that it was harder to adhere to. People didn't hit the target of 5% calories from carbs. They typically ended up around 8%. Mm. But if they got results, it doesn't matter that they couldn't achieve 5%. The intention to achieve five percent took them to eight percent, which got them a got the a best particular result. result. Yeah. Now, whether it is actually better overall, it's pretty washy because, like I say, the effect between diets is generally pretty small anyway. Mm. So, but you know, it's not that the adherence is is sort of bad because people don't achieve a target necessarily. You know, that's that's what I'm kind of getting at. So, really, the point is that. Often as practitioners, what's more important is having a structure that gives results, not necessarily a structure that is then rigidly conforming to what we think it should be in the process. Yeah. Because that's actually just the the doing that ends up being. Yeah. I, I would also state like like challenge the perception of adherence. Uh like I guess the whole position of <laughs> adherence being worse from a 5% to an 8% um, outcome or like end result for what they ended up following. I, I wouldn't necessarily say that adherence is harder or that you can draw that conclusion from that. No. Yes. It was, it was harder to hit, like hit the target, but to me, a qualitative measure would be what's your perception of effort and it, or, or perception of adherence. Did you feel it was harder to adhere to and how, how hard did you rate the diet overall? If I was getting, if I was seeing qualitative data like that from the subjects and it was significantly higher, statistically significant higher than the other groups, then I would say, yeah, adherence is definitely harder. And I would feel a lot stronger with that conclusion. But simply yeah. stating, uh, you know, they, they were given a 5% parameter and they resulted with an eight. I, I personally, I don't feel comfortable drawing the conclusion of adherence from a 3% variation. Yeah, no, that, that's a really good point. And, and often within that same type of context, people assume that things are going to be more difficult, mm. right? So they'll assume, for example, that a restrictive eating is going to be more difficult, but sometimes it's not. No. You know, sometimes more restrictive is easier because for a lot of people, abstention is easier than moderation. Yeah. Now, or routine. Like it's yeah, just easier yeah. to be in routine. Yeah, absolutely. And I think legitimately that's probably one of the reasons that keto or low-carb, whatever, 
work well for people is because yes, they're satiating, particularly if they've got enough protein, mm. but they also allow for auto-regulation because people are typically excluding foods that they would otherwise overeat. Yeah. So, you know, let, let's not, let's not get too silly about things like the carbohydrate insulin model of obesity. I, I think that it's, it's not rubbish as people say, but it's also not the whole story as some people claim, you know, mm. there, there's a lot of nuance there and it's probably a lesser impactor than energy balance overall. Yeah. You know, and whenever I say things like that, people jump all over me saying, hey, you're just a calories in, calories out guy. I'm like, <laughs> well, yes, I'm a first law of thermodynamics guy because it's an immutable law. It's physics. <laughs> <So> yeah. <laughs> but how we achieve that, I think, is the really interesting thing. So here, here we're getting back to talking about translation. What do we do yeah. in practice? And so, you know, going back to, to how I would start with nutrition, take that qualitative approach. One of the other benefits of the lesser refined foods is that typically they're more satiating. Mm. Now, if we also add to that, making sure you're optimized for protein, that's the most satiating nutrient. Mm. If we then make sure we're also getting secondary nutrients and a whole bunch of bulk from vegetables, that's also compounding that satiety effect. Massively. Yeah. If we also then say, well, for not for everyone, but for most people, maybe it's a better approach to focus on meals rather than snacks, then that also helps to regulate our normal uh, hunger and satiety type cycles. Yeah, We tend to also make it easier on ourselves because if we're thinking about, well, I'm going to eat, you know, four meals and four snacks tomorrow, that's blowing my mind already because it's too stressful. (laughs) If I'm just thinking about four meals, two of which are for me, this is how I eat two of them are shakes and two of them are whole food meals. That's easy. Right. So I've got compliance, I've got satiety, I've got all those things which go together towards auto-regulation. And I'm not talking about auto-regulation like people talk about in training. I'm talking about auto-regulation of energy intake. If we set those foundations, we typically tend to not overeat or undereat. Yeah, it makes it a lot easier. And fasting is the same thing. You know, everyone talks about the magical properties of fasting. Sure, there's some very minor things that are a little bit different between um, you know, greater frequencies and lesser frequencies of eating. But overall, the biggest impact is again, auto-regulation of energy. Mm. And so, you know, as, as uh, we've discussed previously, where someone happens to consistently overeat for them and they're not happy with that and they want to change that, an intervention that could help is to remove one meal from the day. Mm. However, that wouldn't be a good intervention if someone was a chronic under-eater. Mm someone with reads or whatever. And so unfortunately the messaging out there is you should fast because of insert buzzword here, autophagy, mitophagy, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Instead of looking at metabolic drive, hormonal optimization, you name it. And same thing goes the other way. You know, you, you hear it from people on the other side saying, and particularly with respect to athletes, women should not, this women should not that women should not do low carb women should not fast but when we look at the research it it doesn't really tell us that as far Mm. as i can see and i've looked into this quite a lot it's the, the the research really points towards if those things are a problem it's because they drive down energy intake yeah it's that simple so it's not about the carbs or lack thereof it's about energy intake yeah. Energy availability. Absolutely. Yeah. So I guess one thing I, I mentioned before, I was like, Hey, like I, I like the three 
I like the three qual- qualitative with the one quant. That's sort of my driver of success with it. And I would say I would always take that. And one caveat that I want to sort of add to that just for the listeners is that that's because when we, especially when we're looking at the research, it's often at times done in an acute sense. So we're not considering the acute on chronic impacts of things. So if we can have qualitative things trending in the right direction, we're satisfying that though, we're satisfying those criteria, then we have a far stronger uh, likelihood that this is going to be a successful long-term intervention. And so with any nutritional interventions, the long-term sustainability is the biggest consideration. And so if we're, for instance, uh, Jackson recently published the ice cap trial and what they found with the diet breaks were that the perception of effort, uh, perception of hunger and the perception of stress just with the whole process was significantly lower with the diet break groups that were having the diet break every fourth week. And so while the resting metabolic rate, lean body mass stuff wasn't really statistically significant in the diet break group, their perception of stress and effort was significantly less than the group that was continually, continuously dieting. Yep. And so for me personally, if I'm putting my practitioner hat, cause I don't practice anymore. I'm purely in like regulation, accreditation, um, insurance education. But if I were putting my hat, like my practitioner hat on, I'm thinking like I'm, I'm assessing the individual and working with them like in that N equals one sense and really pulling the data that I can from them. But then at the same time, I'm really applying these things that I know that, Hey, acutely, we may not have that much more of a statistical significance in terms of the outcomes for optimal results, but I'm really uh, assessing and qualifying whether or not these qualitative variables that we're that you can choose between as a practitioner are going to influence or better influence their likelihood for success in the long term. Absolutely, no doubt. I mean, and that's where I think the the role of autoregulation is critical. Mm. And so tactics that because that's the strategy. And there are certain strategical aspects to that, but within that, there are then tactics that people can apply. So, you know, finding a maybe a baseline level of carbohydrate that works well for for someone as an individual, that's mm. a tactic, right? And then that could shift over time. You know, one of the things that I think it's a truism regardless. If you're following a high-carb diet because it works really well for you, great. If you're following a low-carb diet that works really well for you, great. If you increase your high-intensity training volume mm. of, of any type of high-intensity activity, I'm not talking about HIIT training, I'm talking about anything that's of a higher intensity that's very glycolytic, increase your carbs, right? Yeah. If you're exercising for longer than 90 minutes, let's say, should, you know, will you benefit from carbohydrate supplementation during that session? Yes, you will. Yeah. If you're low carb, yes. If you're high carb, yes, because everyone gets glycogen depleted. So it's kind of cool because you can find your baseline and then modify around that. It, it doesn't need to be a dogmatic thing. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we, we can have those sorts of tactics and like, like I've said, things like a modular approach to meal planning, fasting, they're all tactics to help preserve that. And if they help someone to adhere over the long term, fantastic. Awesome. Yeah. And exactly. if they don't, then throw them out. <laughs> You know, or if they're adhering to a nutrition or lifestyle strategy that's actually counter to their health goals, then there's got to be a shift there. I don't know if I've talked to you about this before. I've seen a number of clients 
for whatever reason, I, you know, when you're seeing clients, sometimes a whole bunch come in over a period of time with similar complaints. And so recently it was just a weird thing. I saw a, a few clients in a row that had what was fairly intractable sort of IBS. They'd been to docs and nutritionists and naturopaths, all sorts, trying to figure out their IBS. And to a person, now this isn't the case for all IBS cases at all, but for these people, at least that I was seeing, it was really interesting because I looked at what they were doing and it was typically, you know, lower carb, aggressive fasting and a lot of restriction because they were, they were trying to pull things out of the diet because they thought they might be reactive to it. Mm. Now, sure, there's going to be some potential intolerance issues, things like that with IBS and either healthy people, you know, whatever, athletes, you know, anyone with, with IBS. But what's super interesting is that in all those cases, I made their, their nutrition plans less restrictive, less aggressive in terms of the fasting, more food, greater frequency of meals, all those various things to, to upregulate their energy intake because I had a strong suspicion that they were underfueled. Yeah. And that was driving the stress picture that had a big effect on gut motility and function. We we, now, we see it with the um low energy availability literature as well, where if someone's low EA, they tend to have really pronounced gastrointestinal disruptions and disturbances. Yeah. And people don't think about it because they start to think clinically and they think, what's the food that's the problem and how can we find it and, and withdraw it? Yeah, yeah. I would immediately think that if someone was talking to me about it. I'd be yeah. like, oh, this isn't within my scope. Go see someone clinically. <laughs> but it's kind of interesting when you look at someone and you sort of do a bit of calculation, you realize, oh, this person should be eating about 2,000 calories a day and they're eating 1,200. Mm. It's like, oh, okay, well, they're, they're drastically underfueled. Let's play around with that idea. And to cut a long story short, every one of those clients is now probably 90% there. Wow. Right? Drastic reduction in gut symptoms feeling better, you know, less mood disorder, all that kind of stuff, all of which we know based on the research around reds, right? Yeah. These are, are very common symptoms if you're underfueled. So, uh, you know, we are looking into research at that into this area at the moment because we suspect that although our population challenge is that a lot of people are in a food environment that is conducive to, to overconsumption, and so we have problems with, um, you know, excess adiposity and metabolic syndrome, there's also probably a significant minority of people who are chronic undereaters, which is driving insidious health problems that they didn't realize, like IBS, like depression, anxiety, all those types of things. Obviously, yeah, there's other yeah. cofactors, but that is part of the picture. Yeah, definitely. Okay, we're going to segue just slightly for you to chat right. a little bit about HPN2. <laughs> yeah. And this is this is for this is for our members, um, like anyone listening, watching, anything like that. Uh, they know they know that we have the three year provisional period, where all they need to do is satisfy the criteria minimums for a certificate if they haven't been through an undergrad program at this point in time before they need to go into an additional program. So that could be a university bachelor's at any uh, in any relevant applied science field. Um, so just to clear that up, if you had done the certificate and you're like, Hey, I really want to do architecture to maintain my accreditation. Sorry, that's not going to fly. But, um, you know, if it was health science, human nutrition, or if it was clinical exercise physiology, they're relevant applied science fields. You can go into one of those, or we have with 
Cliff's Holistic Performance Institute as one of our private institutes that we refer into uh, the HPN2 qualification that you can go into. Yeah. So, I mean, we're, you know, we're really lucky, I think, to be aligned with the Sports Nutrition Association. I'm not saying that as an empty platitude. Uh, you know, I think that for our, our members to be able to pathway through, you know, and if they don't have qualifications to, to do some bridging courses through us, uh, to, to be able to go through HPN1 and then transition into the final stages of your cert to, to be accredited sports nutritionist. And then uh, if, if they really want to get into clinical nutrition, then they can pathway into HPN2. So it's really about a modular approach to education. And, you know, at that sort of foundational level, we're really looking at those fundamentals of nutrition science. We get pretty deep into that, obviously. We look at mm. the translation of that into application uh, for the support of health and performance. But then obviously as sports nutritionists, we, we can end up being a little bit restricted in our scope of practice. You know, if we do have people with health conditions or using medications, you know, we, we need to refer them on. So if we want to start to work with people who have those as part of their adjunctive care team, then obviously we need to study clinical nutrition and all the, the nuances of that. So, you know, using nutrition as part of the treatment strategy for a range of disease and disorders, uh, learning how the clinical practice of clinical nutrition differs from that of a, a sports nutritionist or a health and nutrition coach. Um, so that's the sort of stuff we cover off in HPN2. Uh, for, for you know, our, our New Zealand members, they can go on and register as clinical nutritionists following that course as well. So uh, I think we're the only sort of private institute that, that offers that. Um, so, you know, it's, it's a real, that, that's a real feather in our cap as well is that people can have these really, uh, you know, credible vocational pathways and accreditation opportunities through the SNA, through the Clinical Nutrition Association in New Zealand. And then obviously, um, you know, re registration as a clinical nutritionist differs jurisdiction by jurisdiction around the world. Um, but we're sort of spreading out our, our wings around the world as well to form partnerships yeah, with other organizations too. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. So, uh, just to rehash from our end, if you, if you go into HPN2, you'll be fully openly accredited. Um, that, that satisfies like the minimum requirement that we have for our long-term professional members. And then approximately how long is that program? Cliff, for any of the people considering it? Yeah, so um, typically if people are devoting, we, we have really geared it towards the working professional. So if people are devoting about seven to 10 hours a week, they should be able to get through all of the theory work within a year. Yep. And concurrently with that or separately at the end, we also offer a six month mentoring program, which is compulsory as part of the program because that allows people to, to be mentored by a, an experienced practitioner and they can then accumulate the hours they need to register as a clinical nutritionist. And they also get to obviously have the support of that mentor to, to help them into clinical practice, which is where I think a lot of programs in clinical nutrition don't have that. And so we see massive dropout rates because practitioners will finish. They'll feel like they've got some theoretical understanding, but they haven't really put it into practice enough and they haven't really had that peer support. Uh, so that's something we, we offer there, which I think is really important as part of that education process. Yeah, look, I would, I would 100% agree. And it's so, so important to do that and then have someone 
I, I would suggest to anyone going through, start your mentorship program during your 12-month theory. doesn't have to be at the same time. I would probably gear it toward the end, probably at about month nine or 10 onwards. So that way you can do it whilst concurrently doing your theory. But then at the same time, you've got some time at the end of it once you've graduated to actually just fully immerse yourself into it as well. Um, yeah. because it is so valuable to then have that time where it is your full focus to start practicing and working with clientele in that capacity. But then you've got the mentor to still work with um, with that and have them help transition you through that period. Absolutely. You know, I think most of us understand that one of the best ways to learn is to teach. Yeah. And as a practitioner, that's what we're really doing. We're teaching. Now, not in a top-down setting. You know, I, I do need to put my health coach cap on a little bit here and say, you know, it's not about teaching in terms of telling people what to do. Um, more so teaching in respect to to guiding someone to find their own goals, their own path there, mm. and making sure that with them on that journey, it's a safe and appropriate approach to get their results. But definitely comes down to teaching. And uh, for me, you know, I, I know that I, I always learn best when I'm teaching. Yeah. Look, I'm the same. And I think you know, like you said, it's not to, you know, discipline them and tell them no, it's to allow them to fall forward. And we've got this model. It's in, it's in our info pack now. I think we've got it on a few of our social media pages where we've got that three-year timeline mapped out for how we'd recommend people to go through. So if you've come through the certificate and this is your first foray into the industry as a practitioner, we don't want you going straight into any additional further study, either HPN2, postgraduate diplomas or university study immediately as soon as you graduate the certificate, we really want you to spend a good 12 to 18 months practicing with your clientele and really taking some L's, right? So like taking some L's is what, you know, what anyone in the sports world who watches any sport would consider taking a loss, but it's more of like taking some learns. So yep, experiencing some loss, but also experiencing some learns and then and really learning some important lessons as a practitioner. Things around client acquisition, things around client management, things around client retention. They're the invaluable things that you need to learn before really doubling down, in, I guess, on that side of things. So we really want people to get that exposure, take those losses and embrace the learns along the way. So that yeah. way, when you then do go into these secondary pathways, you're really leveling yourself up as a practitioner. Um, some of, I guess, what are some of the values that you look for within a successful student uh, journey at the HPN2 level? That's a really good question. You know, we've, we've had a lot of, we've put a lot of thought into that. We've had a lot of discussion. I think our approach is very much that, that postgraduate approach. You know, p- people do need to be self-determined to some degree and we we don't, we don't hold their hands unless they ask us to, but when they ask us to, we're going to help them, right? Um, but it really is about being self-directed, being able to allocate their own time to their study. You know, it's exactly the same really in that respect as if someone is doing a postgraduate certificate or diploma or a master's degree, you know, you, you, you're out on your own to some degree. You have to, not out on your own, that's the wrong way to put it. <laughs> you're supported, but you need to have ownership of what you're doing. Um, so that you can progress through it. Now, one of the important aspects of that, I believe, is that if that's the environment that's fostered your learning, that's going to help you to be more self-directed when you get out. Because the reality is, there's not it's not an industry in which there are a huge amount of jobs. Yeah, it's an industry in which there's a huge amount of opportunity. 
because most personal trainers, sports nutritionists, clinical nutritionists, they go into practice. Now, going into practice is going into business. So, you know, we, we try and foster that where it's about being self-directed, but having the support whenever it's required to help compel that and become even more empowered, more self-directed and to actually learn what they're doing. You know, it's your point before uh, about actually getting in and doing it. We encourage that with our students more or less from the get-go. You know, we, we want them to be practicing as student practitioners because they're supported by us. They can start to work with clients. And let's say before they're, if it's a clinical client, before they apply that plan to the client, they're probably going to show it. To, well, they are going to show it to us, right? Mm. So we're going to be able to do the peer review and check it off and say, oh, maybe this isn't safe. Maybe this is inappropriate, whatever. Um, it's far better to do that within the, the supportive environment of the Institute rather than learning all the theory and then just going out on your own yeah. and potentially doing something that's not always safe. Exactly. So, uh, you know, I guess based on what you're saying, if I, if I were to try and break it down, um, I guess for people looking looking at it and, and sort of weighing it up with some of the other options, my suggestion would be, hey, look, set aside at least two hours a day, four days a week. And then like like Cliff said, like at a, at a postgraduate level, you're not on your own, but you are empowered to step in, especially within these programs, you are empowered to step into a, a place of a much higher level of responsibility. And so what that means is being extreme, like that means you're not on your own as far as support is concerned, but you are on your own as far as being required to reasonably communicate. And and I'm going to put a caveat on this and say, promptly communicate anything that you're uncertain of, because the more you can communicate your uncertainties, the more bespoke the support can be for you to then really look after you throughout that process. And it doesn't mean that they're going to come back and say, Hey, here's the answer for you. It'll be like, what do you, it'll challenge you to level up in a way that will help you find the answer on your own. So give yourself enough time to like consider that and consider how long it may take you to be guided to come to the answer in your own time. While, yeah. whilst being guided and sort of failing forward, that's the time that you need to come to them with the questions. Absolutely. And, you know, that, that's also fostered by, we have a really strong community. You know, we've got really good forums on our, in our uh, online campus and we've got a, a really strong Facebook group. And, you know, a, a lot of our members, we call, sort of call them members rather than students because a lot of them are already amazing practitioners. They mm. might be, you know, they might be medical doctors who now want to upskill in nutrition. Uh, that they might be physios or they might be amazing strength coaches, physique prep coaches, whatever. And, you know, that they have a huge amount of knowledge. So it's really about co-learning. It's not about me or anyone else saying, hey, this is the law and this is what you do. It's more about enabling people to find great information and then translate that into practice. And our community is part of that. You know, and we also obviously have fantastic content creators, you know, Eric Helms, um, mm-hmm. Mickey Willardin. Uh, Shreda Madala, you know, Kirsten Bain on. We've, we've got really good people and they're all involved in the community as well. So, you know, how often do you get to sit in a, a Facebook group and be able to get questions on physique prep answered by Eric Helms? Right. <laughs> Never. It's pretty cool. It's awesome. So, yeah, look, that's that that's pretty much it um, as far as the pathway goes. Awesome, bro. All right, I better shoot. You go. See you, mate. Thanks, brother. Bye.